Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to Series 4, Episode 10 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Hello, I hope that you're having a good week. As ever, I need to thank all of you that got in touch with me after last week's episode with David Carlyle. I love him. Um, I think that was pretty clear from the conversation. And I had lots of lovely emails as well. If you want to get in touch with me, you always can. Please do. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. I'm always keen to receive your emails. So if you're one of those people that have been thinking for a while, oh, I really should email in. Do it. Do it. Share your story with us uh, in the last couple of episodes of this series. I would love that. Uh, Yeah, there's always lovely messages. The best way to get hold of me is uh, is through that email or on Instagram. I try and stay away from Twitter as much as possible because I find it quite toxic, quite toxic. So um, I've got a couple more tour shows coming up. I'm really excited about that. I'm excited to finish off doing this tour, which started in 2019, which feels like a very long time ago. I think we can all agree. Very excited about writing some new material and doing a new tour, uh, which will probably be happening around this time next year. Uh, I've been on the telly a bit lately. If you want to catch up on stuff, I was on an episode of Rod Gilbert's Growing Pains, which you can watch on Now TV. I was also on Between the Covers, which is a show about books. Uh, which I absolutely loved being part of. That's hosted by the DJ Sarah Cox, who I absolutely love. Also, the documentary that I was part of, Womanhood, uh, was on a week or so ago and is now on the BBC iPlayer. I think it's really good. It it sparked a lot of conversation and uh, some people loved it and some people were quite angry with me for being really inclusive. And that's okay. Those people can be angry with me. Okay, let's get on to today's episode. Um, I'm going to pass a trigger warning right at the top. So both in one of the emails that I'm going to share today and in the conversation with the amazing Michael Chakravarti, who is just, just wonderful, just such a wonderful man, there is talk of depression and suicide. So if today feels like a day where you don't want to listen to that sort of thing, or maybe maybe you never want to listen to that, that's totally fine too. Maybe stop here and come back to us next week and find something else that is is more comfortable for you to listen to today. Okay, let's get on with a couple of listener emails and then we'll get to the lovely conversation with the wonderful Michael Chakravarti. Hi, I'm listening to your interview with Rose Schmitz and have found it really resonate, particularly comments about representation and some of the hard things about doing something creative. On the first front, I'm a non-binary, gender fluid, queer something. 
I prefer to be ambiguous and not clearly defined. I struggle with the idea of coming out because the question is, as what? And the first time I can think of seeing anyone like me on TV was probably when I watched Feel Good this summer. I'm Canadian and I've lived in the UK, so I have a lot in common with May, but seeing someone who dresses like me and also occupies a similar non-binary space was kind of a first. I'm also a creative. I was told my entire childhood that creative ambitions would lead straight to joblessness and homelessness. All those things that adults tell kids. And we get told these things because our parents worry about us. Being poor and precariously employed is quite unpleasant and stressful. Basically, my entire life, I was sent messages that the two most important parts of me were bad and that I would be better if I tried things that I'm supposed to be more feminine and not creative. Luckily, I did find a design path that works for me. And I try to remember how desperately past me wanted to be where I am now. But I also think we tell kids all sorts of ridiculous things about job options and possible futures. There are careers in design and the arts and lots of ways in which other fields are actually really creative. I wish that kids had the chance to just be whatever they wanted to be and to be encouraged in their curiosities and interests. Instead, I was told no to the parts of me that society didn't have space for over and over. Also, you mentioned your desire to take a pottery class despite having been crap at art your whole life. On one hand, there are certain things we can't be. For me, a singer, a dancer, good at maths. But there's also this weird standard around creativity that you have to be amazing or it's not worth it. Until a certain age, every kid draws and does crafts and they don't really care if they're good at it. That's not the point. I encourage you to get back to making stuff just because it's fun. If that's something you want to do with no expectations around what you might produce or how good it might be. I started writing poetry a few years ago and initially it was something I did because I think words are fun. I still do it with no real concern for whether they are crap, though I generally only share stuff that I think others might have a desire to read. If the art is just for you, then making it is what counts. The rest doesn't matter. Cheers. And that's from Ree. Thank you so much for getting in touch, Ree. Um, I really, I think that I'm saying your name correctly. I really hope that I am. Uh, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I should just have a go. And do you know what? I think, I think my girlfriend might have got me a pottery class for Christmas. Oh, and I keep saying girlfriend. She's definitely my wife now. Uh, but listen, don't tell her. Don't tell her that I think I know that that's what she's got me. Don't tell her. And if my mother-in-law is listening, you also don't tell her. Okay. Thank you for getting in touch, Ray. Let's move on to another listener email. Dear Susie, first off, let me give you my permission to share my name if you end up reading this letter. It is a relief that I'm in a place where I'm ready to share my name and some of my story. I'm finally proud of where I am in my journey to understanding and accepting my sexuality. It's been a long road to get here. And I'm so grateful to you, Glennon Doyle, Jamila Jamil, Florence Given and the late Bloomers lesbian subreddit for giving me vocabulary and acceptance I didn't think I'd ever have. Thanks to the brave people like you, I truly believe more happiness will be found as we continue to share our experiences and our strength. I hope my story might help at least one person feel less alone and possibly inspired to share their true self with the world. Forgive me for not totally knowing how to organise my thoughts here, but I am going to try my best. Well into my 20s, I could never understand why I couldn't say I'm straight with ease or why saying I'm gay was fraught with such panic and fear that I'd gotten it wrong and would need to go back on my word. Only after many years of therapy, hiring a life coach, changing careers, travelling the world, getting a puppy, joining two recovery programmes, was I able to get to the core of why I struggled so much to define my sexuality. I actually didn't trust myself to be myself. 
I struggled to have any sense of self. My sexuality was wrapped up in the chameleon exterior I worked so hard to maintain. I was busy trusting everyone around me to tell me who I was and that I was or wasn't capable of and who I should date. I've come to realise that my sexuality is very closely aligned to me being free of the codependence I hung on to for far too long with my mother. I had witnessed a breakdown when my older brother came out as gay. I was around 13 and my brother popped home from university to tell us he'd realised he was gay. Then he went back away and I was at home struggling with what sexuality even meant. I remember my first thought when he told me was something along the lines of, oh shit, that's what's wrong with me too. But I stuffed that sentiment down and began pretending. Pretending him being gay didn't mean much to me and that I was happy for him. And it wasn't that I wasn't happy for him, but I was scared and panicked inside. I remember being concerned that they would be able to test my DNA for gayness. At that point, I didn't have much vocabulary to talk about my own sexual feelings that had just recently begun. And it scared me so much to see my mum cry and express sheer fear that life would be hard for him. There was no way I could add more queerness to the family, although I didn't even know the word queer until much later in life. It's interesting because I think many people would assume that having a gay brother would make my journey to understanding my sexuality easier. Actually, I think it made it harder because the role I assumed in my family. I was the youngest and the only girl and my parents loved to remind me, even to this day, how happy they were to have a girl. I have some feminine aspects, but some masculine as well. I really struggled with the little straight girl role I was cast to play in my family. I was supposed to make everyone else comfortable and stuff down my own feelings, thoughts, opinions and dreams. It was exhausting and not sustainable, but more on that later. Anyway, when my brother came out, I didn't have a label for my sexuality. I knew I was not straight and I was seriously concerned about the erotic dreams I was having about women. I was on the swim team throughout high school and I wanted to crawl into a hole and disappear every time I had a sex dream about one of my teammates. Seeing my mum fall apart and cope so poorly with my brother's sexuality showed me at a very impressionable age there was absolutely nothing to be celebrated about being anything but straight. That mentally stuck with me for the next 15 years as I tried really hard to be straight. In some ways I did enjoy sex with men and I'm still untangling whether or not I was attracted to them or attracted to the idea of being wanted in a normal way. This was where I was so relieved to grant myself some compassion and patience. Thanks to your podcast and other LGBTQIA plus people brave enough to share their stories, I can accept that I'm still learning to acknowledge and cherish all of me. Whether I am turned on by a man, woman or a non-binary person, I'm so thankful to you and the path you're paving to allow your listeners the vocabulary to talk about this very important parts of ourselves. I can't say that I figured it all out or that I'll ever be 100% certain of a particular label, but I'm much nicer to myself than I once was. Trigger warning. I tried to kill myself in my early 20s when I could no longer pretend that I wanted to follow the path laid out for me. I remember being so cruel to myself, criticising myself for not even being brave enough to throw myself over the railings of a bridge to stop my pain. Even as I write this, these words 10 years later, I'm overcome with sadness that I truly believe that suicide was the only option to stop my pain. No one deserves to feel that way, but at that point, I certainly didn't have the knowledge, nor did I understand how I'd gotten myself there mentally. I blame no one and nothing but myself. However, I now know that I had slowly learned to hate myself through years of repressing who I am or the life that I'm meant for. Not having any sense of self for so long led me to to exist solely for other people and it's no wonder that I didn't enjoy life. 
The family I grew up in was very performative and how we looked held much more importance than how we felt or who we were as individuals. As I grow stronger in my identity and kinder to myself, I am and will continue to be forever grateful to be alive. I'm not sure where my path will go, but I think bright things lie ahead. Thank you for the light you spread. With love and appreciation, your queer friend, Marissa. And that's from the USA. Hi, Marissa, from across the pond. I'm so delighted that you felt um, that you could share this with me and, and sharing your sort of sexuality or your feelings with the world, which is such a hard and confusing thing to do, especially, you know, growing up like most of us have in, you know, a really homophobic society, whether that was really obvious to us or whether it was sort of more subconscious. I think, you know, it's always there. And I'm so pleased that you're feeling so much better now and that you're finding uh, a real joy in who you are. And I'm I'm really touched that you feel that the podcast has helped that in some way. And uh, I mean, that's the very reason that I make this show. So thank you for sharing that with me, Marissa. It really means a lot. And I, uh, I hope that whatever you're doing, you're having a great day. Okay, let's go to the brilliant conversation that I had earlier this week with the wonderful Michael Chakravarti. You might know him from Bake Off. He is just a wonderful guy. And I loved this chat with him. I really hope you do too. I am so excited for today's guest. I love Michael Chakravarti. You might know him from series 10 of The Great British Bake Off, where his warmth, kindness, sense of humour and excellent bread made him a firm audience favourite. Or you might know him as a writer. His work has appeared in The Eye Paper, The Metro and The Guardian, amongst others. He also hosts an excellent podcast, The Menkind Podcast with Mark Watson, which I highly recommend. I was recently on it and then I did that terrible thing that people do sometimes is that when they're on a podcast, they then go, and listen back to old episodes of it and I've listened to loads of it and it's really bloody brilliant and if you enjoy Out then I'm pretty sure you will enjoy Menkind as well so look that up it's an absolute joy to have a conversation with him today welcome to the show Michael hello oh I finished cringing now that's good <laughs> yeah, no, you just said to me I didn't know you did the intro live <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know I always just assumed it happened elsewhere um, it was very nice of you thank you I mean it all. <laughs> how are you? I am well, thank you. We just talked about how I was worried about what I was wearing and then I realised that it's only me and you that can see each other, so it doesn't really matter. No, but you are looking lovely. Thank you. As are you, lovely jumper. Your jumper actually matches your wall. Well, my, my jumper's pink and my wall is red. Right. But there is, it's a, it's a similar hue. They're sisters, I think. I think. Definitely sisters. I'd say they're sisters. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's very nice to have you on the show. I was such a fan of you on the Bake Off and then we sort of became Twitter friends and then maybe even real life friends, which was quite exciting. Well, it was exciting for me because I was a fan of like-minded friends of the the, the original podcast, Ilk, right? The Ridge. The Ridge. And then I've also been a fan of this podcast, long-time listener, first-time participant. Thank you for having <laughs> me. <laughs> well, it's very nice to have you. You're coming to us from Newcastle today. Yes, I am a northern boy now, surrounded by the most sexy accent of all. I think the Geordie accent would we agree I think it's a sexy accent are you are you big into accents when you're dating someone not really no but I just think there's something about an accent isn't there there's something I think it's the Geordie one the Welsh one and the Irish I think basically anything that's just not normal British I find Glaswegian quite angry which might might put off some listeners but it just feels quite aggressive but that's just me being posh Scottish it snips on the consonants it does oh that's a very good analysis 
And so I think it's because it's sort of ba 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 To be honest though, Susie, I can't really be that picky about accents. Anyone that'll have me, any accent you have, <laughs> Glaswegian or not. Because <laughs> you've got a posh Scottish accent, which I is do. very nice. Yeah, people don't often think I'm Scottish. I was brought up in, I was actually born in Newcastle, but brought up in Scotland. So I've got like a, a bit of a lilt. I think it's more that I just say Scottish words in a neutral accent. I don't know. I was brought up in Perthshire by one Scottish person and one English person. So it's sort of right. just as it's a middling accent, I think I would say. I don't know. Do you think I sound Scottish? No, I, I think that it was only when you said, I've got a posh Scottish accent, that I was like, oh yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> so I think it's quite hard to place. Yeah, definitely, for sure. People often think in England I sound Scottish, in Scottish I sound English. But then when I went on television, it just became... No one knew where I was from. People were like, is he Welsh? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Oh, I'd sound much happier if I was. Everyone in Wales just sounds happy with everything they say. They'll be talking about a storm battering the coast and you just think, oh, isn't that nice? It is a beautiful accent. That yeah, is very true. I sing song. It's very true. So you, you mentioned before that you were born in Newcastle, mm. but then you moved up when you were very young to Scotland. Yeah, so in 2000, so I'd have been ooh, seven years old. So I don't really remember. I was born in Newcastle, we moved to Yorkshire for a bit and I remember the house in Yorkshire, but that's all I really remember from there. And interestingly, actually, whenever I read books, that is the house. Like, oh, really? Yeah, that's the house that I picture in every book. I read The Help recently and that's the house. And um, yeah, all all films, all, all books that I read, whenever there's a house in the book, it's always my house in Yorkshire that I grew up in until I was seven and then we moved to Scotland. What house do you picture? I don't know that I do. I don't know that there's a specific house. But we'll have to talk about it next time you read a book. Just let me know which house you thought of. I'll just text you, yeah. yeah. I'll be like, oh my God, I'm thinking of your house in Yorkshire as well. <laughs> it was a lovely That's house. so weird because I don't know what it looks like, but I'm, but I'm absolutely certain it's Michael's house. <laughs> yeah, but my memory started in Scotland. I only really remember kind of growing up in Scotland and I left there in 20... Oh, 2016, 2017, and I've lived back in England again because that's where work is. I wonder if the Yorkshire house thing is because that's like the blueprint in your brain of what a house looks like. It's weird, isn't it? I think it is to do with that. I think it's to do with the fact your mind is kind of formed in that place, if that mm. makes sense. I think your 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 first experiences of kind of learning where a kitchen is and learning where the living room <laughs> is and having your own bedroom or sharing a bedroom, all of that happens in that one place. But then I think also your life is also kind of contained within that place when you're that age. Whereas when you yeah. kind of get past seven, you go you go outside a bit more. <laughs> well, we went outside, yeah. obviously. To be clear, I was allowed out when I was younger. <laughs> but your life is a bit more contained when you're younger, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And so what was little Michael like? How early were you baking? That's my first question. <laughs> I was baking. We baked all the time with my mum at home. Mum and I baked all the time in the kitchen. I shudder to think of the bakes that I made, but I do remember having a rolled dial baking book, like based on all the all the bakes from his things. And there was this porcupine cake that you had to make. I never made it, but I just looked at the pictures and I loved all of that. Would you put loads of um, matchmakers in as the spikes? Was that it? I think what they said was to like make chocolate, like rolled chocolate spikes, which is a bit much when you're like... That's a lot yeah. for a seven-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Like that's really putting a shift in as a seven-year-old baker. For sure. But my mum's always had this brilliant cookbook, which I have... Uh, 
I've put dibs on for when she dies. That's nice. Which is <laughs> obviously I'll be very sad as well. But it's a cookbook that's been passed down through her generations. Like it's got her her great granny's recipes and her great granny's <gasps> handwriting and all these things. And so that that has always lived in the kitchen and it's kind of closed with a rolling pin as like a little latchy thing. Oh. And so from a Christmas a couple of years ago, mum photocopied every single recipe and gave it to me. And so I've got a copy myself. And so we kind of always We've always kind of scribbled out recipes by hand and things like that. So it's always been a part of our lives when we were baking, but um, my brothers weren't particularly interested. <laughs> so I just got involved. That's really nice. And that's so interesting that it's not interesting. Interesting is the wrong word, but that's so beautiful that it's passed down through generations mm. that it's like that's something that's sort of almost hereditary yeah to you. yeah and then I felt really guilty when I was on Bake Off because I used some of the recipes and when you use a recipe on Bake Off it becomes property of the Bake Off and I was like but it's not though because it's my great grannies and they were like yeah I know but we own this now and I was like oh right so I changed them slightly so that they're, they're, <laughs> the hours are still hours and they've got a slightly different one <laughs> that's nice yeah for sure. that's nice just to keep it just keep it a little bit for you, for yourself. And what was your family setup like? You, you mum, dad, and you've got and you've got two brothers. brothers. Yeah. So my mum and dad, and then I've got a big brother called Daniel who's two years older, and a little brother called Cameron who's two years younger. And the younger one is the most clever out of all of us, which is frustrating. But um, there we are. <laughs> <laughs> I think he deserves it because when we were younger, we used to like. I feel like when, when you're younger, I hope he doesn't listen to this. When you're younger, I feel like you view a younger sibling as like expendable <laughs> like if this is i really hope that cameron's not listening as well cameron if you are listening please get in touch and uh you can have your say like, on this show i feel like they like when you go into like a scary like water slide you'll send cameron down first if he makes it great and if he doesn't then you know to go on the other slide <laughs> and that's always been the right. case so i feel like right. he probably deserves to be the cleverest um after the trauma of being the youngest child you saying that about the water slide. I think my brother used to do that to me. Ah, there you are. Because I distinctly remember we were on holiday and there was this massive slide. You had to cross your arms over your chest. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Put your yeah, hands yeah. on your shoulders and cross your arms. And I said to my brother, why do you have to do that? And he said, because so many people die on this. They can put you straight in the coffin. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. You were the expendable sibling. You were the expendable sibling. <laughs> I haven't thought of that in years. That's so funny. <laughs> Obviously, we've mentioned baking, but what were you like in your way as a child? I was quite loud. Um, <laughs> Mum and dad always remember me just talking constantly. And if I wasn't talking, I was just making noise. There's three three brothers, so we would always fight not to be in the middle seat. And whenever I lost, I would just sit in the middle seat, sandwiched in between my brothers and just make noises all the time. And one of the first things my big brother ever said was, Michael's chatting, Michael's chatting, because Michael just wouldn't stop chatting. So like I was very talkative and very kind of outgoing and gregarious. I think as a kid which is interesting considering now I don't really view myself as that anymore um, and I don't really know when that shift well I probably do when that shift happened when I was in my teens but I was very outgoing very gregarious when I was younger for sure would you think that people would have thought that you were flamboyant probably I don't know flamboyant is such a loaded word because basically what I'm saying is did you seem gay which is <laughs> camp isn't it it's campness I think yeah I think camp is but I don't know actually if that's 
I don't know. As I've asked that, I'm like, oh, is that an offensive thing to ask? No, I'm not offended. It always makes me think of flamingos, which is where my mind went. And I had to kind of pull my mind away from flamingos. No, no, no. I mean, did you walk around on I one used foot? both legs when I was younger, to be clear. <laughs> okay, good to know. Good to know. <laughs> I think I was definitely camp, um, I think, in terms of my interests. It is interesting, isn't it, that we always kind of associate interests with sexuality. But I was definitely interested in theatre from a very young age. Um, yeah. I recently went back to Yorkshire, actually, where, uh, where I grew up before I was seven, um, to see that town. My friend's got a house there that I always think of. Ah, well, the, yeah, it's, it's mine. It's you, Michael. It's, mine. it's you. <laughs> <laughs> it's on a... And no, I shouldn't give you the address. I need to give you the address then. Can you imagine? I walked past the theatre and I suddenly noticed... It's called Upstages. And I, no, and I noticed where the youth theatre was. And I said to my mum, oh my goodness, I, I remember this place. And she was like, I think you only went there three times. But theatre has always been a huge part of my life when I was younger. I was always obsessed with that. So I think my interests were perhaps quite camp and my disinterest in sports, perhaps. But I don't think I was particularly effeminate in my behaviour, I wouldn't have said, um, if there mm. is such a thing. I think I was just always talking and hanging out with the girls, really always hung out with the girls wasn't really interested in the boys actually that's not true I wanted the boys to want to hang out with me but they didn't so I hung out with the girls and all and always older girls as well which is interesting Mm. Mm. I think that's such an interesting point you make about interests seeming camp or or giving them a, a sexuality right because it's so it's obviously something that's like come up before in the podcast but no one's sort of put it quite succinctly as you, uh, which is just a really interesting thing to think about, about that sort of, the 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 things that we we throw on just hobbies. Right. Because like, I, I often found, because I grew up dancing, and I you would find that the boys were either gay, mm. or you would think they're going to be gay. Mm. And certainly like, you know, from one gay to another, you sort of go, I think, mm. I think we're wrestling with a similar beast. <laughs> we play gay or nay, don't we, as gays? You kind of walk around going, are you one of us? Yeah. Are you not one of us? Yeah. And then when you find yourself staring at one of us and they're like a gay couple holding hands, you're staring at them being like, you're one of us. And then you're like, oh no, is this aggressive staring that I'm doing now? Then you yeah. try and change your eyes to kind eyes. And then you've been staring at them for too long by the end. Far too long, yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing gay people holding hands in public as a teen and being like, oh my God, oh my God, there's one of me, but no one knows it's me yet. I'm feeling very excited by it. For sure. When, when I was dancing, the boys were either sort of maybe gay or they were real shaggers. Right, right, yeah. They were sort of the opposite and they were boys that were like, they were probably quite like fit because they were working out, like, you know, dancing such a cardio And they can thing. use their hips as well, generally, if they're dancing. They can use their hips. And so they were like either sort of one or the other, but they had to really push up that sort of macho-ness at school. I do wonder, yeah, whether there's this, if, you, if you're if you a straight person dancing or in the theatre, you have to sort of hyper, think about men, hyper-masculinise mm. yourself. That's not really a word, mm-hmm. but I think it makes sense. Um, but it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I think about it now and you can kind of retrospectively put psychology onto it, can't you? You yes. can think, oh, well, it's an escape and it's this and it's freedom to do whatever and you can be someone else or whatever. But when I was like nine or 10, I don't think I was thinking that. So I am interested in the kind of, I think on one side, it's in, it's interesting that we've put uh, sexuality onto interests, but on the other side, is there something in the fact that sexuality does impact you? And like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, there was, it's sort of chicken and egg, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and there was an interesting documentary uh, like ages ago, I think even when I was maybe not even out, that Matt Lucas did about gay voice. 
about lisping. You know how the oh. the kind of the gay there's a gay voice. I think if I say the word gay voice, people will kind of know roughly what I mean. Um, At drama school, it was referred to as a camp tea. Perhaps it was. I don't know. I maybe I've never heard camp tea. I don't think that's an official thing. Mm. Uh, just a drama school teacher mm. said, you know. A, a camp tea and it was you know not it wasn't a drug I'm, I'm pretty sure he was he may have been gay but um yes there was there's something about this some sort of voice affectation yeah and i can't remember i can't remember the conclusion of the documentary now uh, but um he he went into kind of why are men interested in musical theater and things like that it was really interesting um mm. i don't know whether there was a conclusion to it in the end um but i've spoken to lots of gay people i didn't have I don't think I had the the gay voice in inverted commas when I was younger, mm. but um, on on Mankind we spoke to Tom Daly, who was really conscious of his gay voice when he was younger, and he thought it was giving him away. So that's really it's really interesting, isn't it? It's, it's what it a small podcast really is about, I suppose. <laughs> no, yeah, but it is really interesting, and it's interesting that we have to consider those things, or mm. you know, it, there's a sadness to it if from a sort of young age, or from say ten or eleven, you're going, okay conform fit mm. in don't do what your natural way is but what's interesting when i was when i was 10 or 11 i wasn't thinking i didn't think i knew i don't think i knew i was gay for at least a couple of years after that i just wanted i wanted to fit in but didn't sort of like i wasn't unpopular at school i had friends but I wasn't part of the popular groups. Like there was a couple of, there was a three or four big social groups and I didn't really fit into any of them. I had maybe two or three good friends in my year of about maybe 200 or so. So I, wa- I wasn't unpopular, but I wasn't popular. I just kind of sat in the middle, but I didn't know I was gay, definitely. I just wasn't fitting in. And I mm. don't know when that kind of changed into or morphed into me being gay or whether that's separate. Maybe that's just separate. That's the thing, isn't it? Because I sort of wonder that now as I go, oh, I always felt like I really didn't have friends at school. And I look back and sort of go, well, there were certainly times when I had fewer friends or when I, I do remember eating lunch by myself a few times. But I also think it was so wrapped up in anxiety. And I'm sort of, and I, you know, now as an adult, you sort of go, oh, was that? a queer thing was mm. that an anxious person thing <laughs> was it related to neither of those things and was that just the kind of teenager I was well I remember I really tried to mask who I was and I don't mean just in terms of sexuality I mean like I love I'm a basic pop bitch I love pop music I just love it but at school I couldn't like that wasn't mm. what boys were listening to so I was just not an option not an option so I'd be listening to like System of a Down and huh. I know you said Watership Down then but that's a different type of, type of listening yeah um, that also feels quite camp <laughs> very camp <laughs> I feel like that might have been a clue Michael's crying to Watership Down in the corner <laughs> keep saying bunnies bunnies um, and I remember really like vividly I became obsessed with Avenue Q but privately at home ah uh, yes that's, if people don't know, it's a really funny musical that are, it's sort of like characters from Sesame Street saying quite <laughs> shocking really things. Really rude, really rude. Really rude, really naughty. Uh, it was on in the West End for a bit, but it was huge in America. It's, it's a very American thing. It's filthy Worth puppets. having a listen to. Filthy puppets, yeah, worth having a listening to on um, Spotify if you if you if that's your sort of thing. You might enjoy it. I, Go on, I, sorry. I, sorry no, it's good to, look, good, to, good to point it out. I am, um, and I... I sat, I was sat at the back of a geography class and we were doing work so we could put our earphones in and I switched from System of a Down to Avenue Q and like it was a song that was quite like 
operatic i think it was the more you rub someone that they sing in the second art second part and um the person sitting next to me was like what is that because they could hear it through my earphones because we were using the old ones you know the ones with the headphone remember headphone jacks r.i.p um pre pre bluetooth those days and um and it was a re i remember my heart just pounding and being so embarrassed and mortified and i never listened to music in front of anyone again like i just wouldn't do it and it's weird because i was really involved in the theater groups at the school like it wasn't something that was a secret but i i mm. i felt like it was wrong that i wasn't quite fitting that mold and i think it was probably around the time i was beginning to kind of work out that i might be attracted to boys not the girls and that was quite a weird, just a weird, difficult moment. Mm. And what sort of age would you have been at that point? I was probably around 13, 14, 15, around that yeah. sort of time. So probably in Scotland, that's kind of your first couple of years of secondary school. Right. And I remember there was a boy in my class who was popular, funny, bit of a lad, um, always up for a laugh. And I remember thinking, I remember noticing him and th- being attracted to him and thinking, oh, all right, okay. But I, didn't th- I don't think I thought it was wrong. I just thought it was secret because I didn't know anybody else. Well, actually, that's, that's, not, that's not true. I hadn't seen it in, I mean, what I mean is I hadn't seen it in public. I hadn't seen it in like on telly or anything like that. It was nowhere. I don't think I'd seen Maxie from Skins yet because that was the first gay person I saw and they were fake and actually a straight person. There was a, a lesbian in our school who was very out, very happy, very proud of who she was. And it wasn't really a problem. No one... I don't know. I can't speak for her experience, actually. But from what I saw, there wasn't really a problem mm. with it. Good for her. I always think people that come out of school are so brave. She's incredible. Shout out to Erin if she's listening. Um, <laughs> she's amazing. Hi, Erin. Hi, Erin. I haven't spoken to her in years, but she was fab. But then there was another boy that I was that I knew was gay, but he was, he was a lot more kind of effeminate or camp than I felt like I was. And so I was like, well, I'm, I definitely fancy boys, but I don't know whether I... I don't think I'm gay because I think he's gay. So mm. I couldn't quite work out where to slot that together, really. And there's not really anywhere to explore it, is there? No. And I think that's an interesting thing where you go, well, I'm not, I don't feel like... I mean, I think it's certainly getting better these days. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at something like... Like on last week's episode of Out, uh, it was David Carlyle. Yes, lovely David. And lovely David Carlyle. And I think shows like It's a Sin sort of gave us an insight into like different... Unfortunately, it was just men. I wish they had featured some gay women. That would have been lovely. And, but, and by people. <laughs> and by people, yeah. yeah it would yeah. have been amazing to... But, hey, but, but, but it's still a brilliant series For that sure. I really, really enjoyed. But I think that gave a really... A much clearer idea of the, the different types of gay people. There are, you know, the really butch guys. There's mm. the, you know, Ollie's character. There's all these different types of people, different types of gay people, sort of not suggesting that we're all one and the same. But mm. I think... Certainly when I was growing up, I know that you're a little younger than me, but it felt like, well, you're this or you're that. And if you don't feel like this, then what am I? It built a resistance to camp in me, I think. Mm. And actually probably some internalised homophobia against camp. And eventually when I came out around the age of 19, no, 18, 19, I was my second year of university, I went to pains to tell people that I wasn't that type of gay like that I was like I'm still me I'm not gonna change I'm not gonna start becoming this camp person I'm just I just I I did that awful thing which it's not awful thing I shouldn't I shouldn't shame myself for it but I came out as bi and then came out as gay in a quick succession thing and I hope for bi people that changes because I think the more we 
the more people see gay people being happy and representation happens more, I think the easier it is to just come out as complete, it's just come out as who you are. I think it is damaging to buy people to have that I think so too, yeah. endless narrative. I can understand where it comes from because it's kind yeah. of like a tentative step in like toe in the water, but it's definitely damaging. And I, I think that's why yes. I feel embarrassed by it. Sort of suggesting that people's existence is somehow a stepping stone for you. Exactly. I can understand why I did it because I was being, I was kind of nervous about doing things, but I hope that changes because I think the more we see people being happy, being who they are, it's quite, it's a lot easier to come out. Well, I'd like people not to come out, but that's a long, a long way off. Anyway, yeah, I've got myself into a tangent. Uh, what was I saying? When I came out, yeah, I, I wanted people to know that I wasn't going to become a feminine person or mm. be more camp. And it's actually been only the last four or five years that I've been like, do you know what? If I want to wear nail polish, I will. If I want to be in a screaming gaggle of gays, then I will. Like, it's fine to be mm. embracing that campness. And it's taken me a long time to unlearn that. But I think the roots of, of it are at school, where I wanted to fit in with the boys and none of the boys were camp. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't be camp, basically. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I think it's very common that, you know, gay, gay men not wanting to be seen as camp. And I think there's still a real hostility yeah. sometimes towards men that are camp in our community. Mm. And quite similarly to particularly butch women. Yes, absolutely. It's a similar thing, isn't it? It's a similar, it's two sides of the same coin, isn't it? It's a too feminine man or a too masculine woman. Yeah, and it's really sad because I wonder if it's because it shows, is it the the loudest version of who we are? Is it the most obvious version of who we are? Is it the thing that, homophobes expect us to be or the thing that we're scared that people think it's but it's also it's, the opposite of what you brought what not what you brought up that's, yes. that's putting stuff on your ad on your parents which isn't fair i mean brought up in terms of society but it's, yes. it's the opposite of what society thinks you should be it's society yes, thinks exactly. that a, a, a lady wears skirts and has long hair and sits quietly in the corner and doesn't speak unless spoken to and is paid for by her husband. And a, and a man yeah. and a man is butch and, and has big muscles and is the caregiver and all these things. And thankfully those things are changing, but the attitudes are the last thing, aren't they? The last bit on the needle to fully swing. And we are getting there and we are getting there. I think so too. And I am loving learning more about my campness. And I think it's by surrounding myself more with queer people that I've kind of learned mm. oh it's okay to be however you are do you know what I mean I think that's fab I think so too and I think that um I think that historically often camp has been a bit of a punchline mm -hmm. and I think luckily we're sort of moving away from that mm -hmm. now as well which is good and people are yeah I guess engaging with all parts of their their sexuality or their personality in a, in a way that maybe they couldn't previously mm. was being gay something that was talked about at home was it something that you were aware of was it uh, did your parents have any queer friends i don't remember seeing my parents with any queer friends it's not to say they don't have any i don't remember seeing them it was always okay i knew it was i knew it was going to be okay with my parents which is why the whole shame was fascinating to me well not fascinating i didn't enjoy it at the time but looking backwards no, <laughs> no one sits in this going oh this is fascinating i wonder why i yeah. hate myself so much <laughs> i remember a car ride home i think it was in my uh, nearing the end of my of my school time and mum kind of said oh have you got a girlfriend or something and i said no and then there was a pause and i was like oh no <laughs> and then she said have you got a boyfriend and I was like, no. And then the conversation was over. But mum, my mum and dad, I think, knew 
from quite a young age and they they made me aware it was a possibility sort of that it could it could happen but I think I just didn't quite it felt too abstract I think somehow to be able to kind of engage with as a concept when I was that age it's weird isn't it because even though your parents are saying it's fine if you are they didn't say it in those words but I knew it was Mm. even though they were giving me that supportive environment I still didn't I still didn't want to be. I spent so long praying that not to be. Like I'd, I'd, mm-hmm. um, I'd put weird things on myself. I think we spoke about this before at some point, but like if I could get through this door before it closed, that would mean I wouldn't be gay. Mm-hmm. Or I would just find ways to try and prove to myself that I wouldn't be and try and yeah. force myself to fancy girls. And I just didn't want to be this thing because I didn't, mm-hmm. I don't think I knew what the future looked like for it. I I really, really hated it. And it took me to some quite dark places, I think, actually. And I feel, weirdly, I feel guilty for going to those dark places because because I had so much support around me that I just wasn't using. And I think I knew I had that support around me, but I still wasn't using it. And I still went to those dark places. And I, I don't think I fully unpacked why that happened. I went to uni and I forced myself to be straight I tried to sleep with women I tried to have girlfriends I filled my time with people it didn't work um it kind of culminated in a phone call to the Samaritans one night where I did just didn't know where to go anymore and I yeah I thought I thought that was pretty much it I thought I was done the lovely lady on the end of the phone didn't really tell me to do anything, but just sat and listened. And she was the first person I ever told I was gay. It was a very long conversation. It was a hard conversation. Gosh, I feel quite um, emotional thinking about it. Um, and she said... Only if you feel okay with sharing. No, of course, we of can, course. We can move on. No, no, no. It's, 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 I think it's important. She said, is there anybody that you could tell tomorrow? And I said, yes. And it was my friend Mel, who had gay friends. At that point, I'd met gay people as well. And so I texted my friend Mel that night and I said, I'm going to tell you something tomorrow, um, but I can't do it now. And Mel, the brilliant friend that she was, just said, okay. And then the lady in the Samaritans hung up, but she promised that she would call back the next day. And so I I called my friend Mel and told her and she went, okay. (laughs) And that was that. It was amazing to have gone from the, the darkest place I think I've ever been in my entire life one night and then the next morning to be like, oh, <laughs> I'm fine. It was such a massive weight lifted. And uh, the actual coming out process was then, it was like a snowball. It took about a month and, th- and then it was over. Susie, I've not come out since. No, that's not how it, <laughs> that's not how it works. Uh, we all know coming out is a gradual process, but I am. Um, I told Mel and I told my close housemates and I kind of worked my way around I was really nervous about telling some people, but all the reactions, well, no, that's not true. Most reactions were lovely. I sadly had some really horrible reactions from friends who I'd grown up with, most of whom I don't really talk to anymore because of that. One of them had t- taken me for a walk the week before that Samaritan's call and asked me outright if I was gay. And I said, no. And she said, thank God. <sighs> it's stuck with me now. And that's over 10 years ago. But yeah, so I don't speak to her anymore. I don't speak to lots of the friends who kind of turned their backs because uh, mm. I became gossip for a while, but I kind of managed to just move on with it. I actually fell into a relationship fairly soon afterwards, which really did help. I mean, the relationship wasn't healthy for various other reasons and it only lasted a year. 
still my my one and only boyfriend though um but it, it really did help and actually having a boyfriend was a really easy way for me to come out because you would yes. just talk about your partner and then use a he pronoun when i told my little brother i told him i'm gay and he was just like yeah sure fine but the way i told my big brother was by telling him that i had a partner and i used the he pronoun and i kind of sat braced in my seat and i watched his face kind of go hmm okay and then just carried on and actually interesting my relationship with my brothers has really improved since I came out I think there was a bit of friction of kind of being like why aren't we matching in certain ways and actually I think coming out was a really a, a breathe out for all of us because it was like ah oh, perhaps this is the thing that's been kind of separating us and so yeah everything's been everyone's been really lovely and I not everyone I keep saying everyone because you always say that don't you I don't know but people ask I feel like when you're in the public eye and I'm not massively but I am a little when people ask about coming out you feel this pressure to sort of be like yeah it's all fine don't worry mm. and there's the it gets better project which is amazing an amazing project did amazing work and it does get better but it doesn't get better immediately and like there are dark sides to it but for the most part most people were really accepting and I don't think I finished my journey of being okay with being gay like for a while when I came out I was I was grudgingly gay <laughs> perhaps I would say like fine if I'm gonna be gay I'll be out at least um and then perhaps I think it's probably in the last three or four years I've been people always say you don't choose to be gay but I think in the last three or four years I felt like actually I would I would choose to be gay if I mm. if someone gave me the choice I'd be like yeah actually I'm quite happy in this life now it's fun yeah <laughs> I agree I agree. Thank you for sharing that, Michael. I'm sure that would, you know, potentially really help a lot of our listeners because I think that, you know, acknowledging that, that darkness and acknowledging it doesn't happen. It's not like done. That yeah. was easy. Yeah. Now it's so I can breathe out. I think there is a there is a sort of an exhale, but I don't think that it's necessarily solves all of your problems. And I think sometimes when you expect it to, it can actually end up being quite disappointing. There's more work to do, isn't there? Once you've come out, you've got you've got to unpack and work out who you actually are because. It's only one part of who you are. Yeah, exactly. And so what were your thoughts then when you sort of applied for Bake Off? Obviously, you were an excellent baker. But did you think, right, well, this is me potentially being out in a more, a more public way, that it, that my sexuality, not that your sexuality would necessarily be discussed, but, you know, living in, you know, a public forum. Mm. Before we came on the chat, we discussed the fact that I've experienced my first pile on this week. Yeah. You know, being out and queer and happy i mean there is still something quite punk about it I <laughs> thank think. you thank you so much i'm gonna change my the first time someone's called you <laughs> yes. punk i'm gonna change my twitter bio now michael Chakraverty, punk. <laughs> punk i'd love that <laughs> punk them are pronouns um i uh so the reason i applied to bake off and i've spoken about this a lot so i won't dwell on it i have anxiety i have depression i have had them i think actually since just before i came out or around the time and I think my anxiety actually comes from growing up gay and overthinking everything, single thing that I did. And I've kind of just learned that that's how my brain needs to work. But I went to therapy in the year before I applied to Bake Off. And the result of that therapy, after uncovering some bits and bobs about myself, was that I kept saying no to things. I kept putting limits on what I thought I could or should do or how I could or should behave. And so I set myself a challenge of saying, let's start saying yes to things. And then I baked along with Bake Off that year and someone said, you should have like a Bake Off. And I was like, no, no. And then as soon as I said no, I was like, no, oh. <laughs> now I've got to say yes. So I applied for it. So I don't actually really think I thought about being gay really in the process of it. And I didn't kind of realize it was a thing that I was going to be gay on the show until I was announced. 
like and I was I was quite gay on the show um, uh, myself and David were very gay on the show but when it came out I got lots of messages being like oh it means so much that we've got a gay it's a gay person who's brown and uh, anxious <laughs> god I ticked all the yeah. boxes gay brown mentally unwell tick 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 they felt the representation was amazing and I was like oh my god this is incredible oh some people I hadn't told that I was gay would reach out and be like oh my god congratulations or whatever which was I was like oh wow and obviously you also got the the trolls on the flip side of that who didn't want to see oh I don't know what they didn't want to see gay people baking I don't know well that's the thing <laughs> that's the thing I just don't believe that you've got the the, the strength in the elbow <laughs> to really whip up those if gays have anything Susie it's strong elbows um... <laughs> <laughs> I still don't really understand it if I'm honest <laughs> but yeah like I I don't think I realize quite the impact of it until it kind of happened it just wasn't Mm. on my mind really in terms of the show and like the show is is created by a really diverse mix of people so it doesn't didn't really occur to me but then the platform that I ended up with after Bake Off was the bit that made me uncomfortable because I was like right I've got these people saying that it means a lot there's a representation there and actually Bake Off is a great show because there's lots of representation yes well mainly of gay men and sometimes a a gay woman if you're lucky um sometimes uh, called Jan that's the only one I can name who's lovely who's 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 gorgeous yet to see a trans person if you're listening please please cast a trans person or an or an NB wouldn't that be lovely imagine Noel and Matt saying they them pronouns oh anyway representation has been great and so I was like right well what do I do with this platform like I need to do something with it then and that's where I kind of started shouting about gay rights on Twitter and getting piled on like like it's happening to you today. But I think it's important that we do. And I think people need to see other people standing up for them. And like, if you think about it realistically, gay people really only started to get rights when straight people kind of took on the cause themselves. Yeah, And that's kind of how I feel about the other letters that so often get ignored like what's so lovely about this podcast is it's not just the g that gets listened to and i think actually the g has a lot of work to do to help other people because while yes we go through horrible things we we have more rights and we're more easily acceptable on television and everywhere than lots of other people including gay women or um the invisible bi people who people just don't see properly or asexually do you know what i mean i think I think there's a lot that we should, could and should be doing. I can only imagine that that sort of weight of expectation is is maybe too strong. But was was there an added thing as as someone that is a, a person of colour mm. to feel like being, you know, out? But because there is still a lack of, you know, often if we hear a gay story, it's often a gay men's or mm. a gay woman's, and they're usually white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's obviously fantastic when we get more diversity but did did you feel like there was extra stuff there where you thought I really want to be visible in that respect I think so I think my surname outs me quite quickly lots of brown people reached out and they were like oh my gosh Mm. there's more there's there's more of us out there which is amazing and I do feel a bit of a pressure there I don't really talk much about it because I feel I feel I have a complicated relationship with my race because I wished I wasn't brown for a lot of my life, which is a whole other Out With Susie podcast. <laughs> Probably not my podcast to have as someone <laughs> else's true. podcast, I'd say. I, I don't want to step in that area. I think that's not my area. But I will happily listen and very happy to learn. Yeah, I've had a complicated relationship with it. Like I used to always tick white on forms when I wasn't. Mm. And it took me a long time to kind of come to terms with it. And like, I feel weird getting racist comments because I'm like, well, I don't know. Because of that complicated relationship, I get really 
uncomfortable obviously getting comfortable but like I, I don't know it makes me feel weird but i i've encountered racism on like dating apps and things like that and as soon as they find like a surname they're not interested or whatever but i haven't really spoken much about that online really because i don't really know what to say like mm. i kind of feel like racism is bad <laughs> like yeah full stop <laughs> the end like i don't quite know I don't really know what what voice I have to say on that or what platform I have to say on that. I find it quite hard to know when to talk and when to shut up and listen. And I think because of my weird relationship with my race, I've kind of just sat and listened more than I've kind of spoken up perhaps because I don't feel like it's my place. I'd rather listen to much more educated brown people of which there are plenty. And then I'll just retweet what they say. <laughs> and I'll go, yeah, yeah, what they said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what they said. <laughs> I've loved chatting to you, Michael. I think you're brilliant. I think you're brilliant. Thank you for having me. I think you're just a little slice of goodness. Oh, thank you. <laughs> With buttercream in the middle. Oh, so and jam, Swiss probably. meringue only, please. Swiss meringue it's, buttercream. It's, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't know how to bake, but you are you have promised to teach well, me. I will so teach that, you brownies one that's day. That's gonna be that's gonna be that, that that'll be probably a YouTube episode, let's be honest. Oh that, let's people, do that. People be are fun. gonna people are gonna watch that. <laughs> uh, we can't just have audio of me going, ah, oh, what have I got to do now? <laughs> it, oh, it goes on no. for so long, Susie, and then there's this washing up so, to do. Oh no <laughs> Michael, no I don't think people want that as a podcast. But I know that you've listened to the show, so you, mm. you, you'll know what the final question yeah. of the podcast is. But if you could sort of reach out, and I'm, I guess I'm thinking of that version of you that was listening to Avenue Q <laughs> and you were scared that that would somehow give you away. If you could reach out to that guy or to someone experiencing a similar thing right now, what would you say? I think... I think it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to think about what you, what would have made it feel better at the time. But I think just to say to that person that any any mistakes you think you're making or any times that you feel like you're under threat of being discovered, like, God, it's weird, isn't it? I've thought about this a lot and I can't think, like, I think it's the anything you feel like you're doing wrong it's okay like it's fine and any mistakes that you make and you are going to make some mistakes and things that are bad might happen and all of that is okay like it's it's gonna make you who you are and like the cliche is that it gets better but the mistakes are gonna make you better as well and the bad things are gonna make you better as well and you will come out of it better and you'll come out of it stronger and you'll come out of it as you and I think that's the that's the bottom line isn't it is that all the all the things you think you're doing wrong and all the things that are happening to you are going to make you who you are so stick with it and if you do something wrong it's okay I think it's the full stop there yeah Michael, that was perfect. Sorry, I feel a bit, I feel a bit, <laughs> I got a bit teary there thinking about that. No, <laughs> I think that that's, that is perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Suze. That was the wonderful Michael Chakravarti. I loved that conversation. I'm sure you did too. If you want to get in touch, you always can. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com and I will speak to you next week. Okay, you take care then. Bye-bye. <laughs>